The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And uh, as I like to remind you, each week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And uh, the company that uh, produces that letter, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, those of you who might be interested in uh, signing up for Chen's letter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. Uh, you need to go to miningstocks.com. Uh, just add your name to the waiting list, and at the beginning of each calendar quarter, uh, Chen Lin uh, accepts a certain number of names uh, and new subscribers to his service. Um, so go to miningstocks.com to sign up, uh, put your name on the waiting list for Chen, or you can also sign up for my newsletter at miningstocks.com as well, uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and uh, I would like to invite you to keep your questions and comments coming to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Uh, and I would like to also invite you to follow me on Twitter, uh, my Twitter Twitter handle is jtaylormedia. And uh, the best website to go to for everything that I do, including the second hour of today's show, uh, is uh, to go to jtaylormedia. That's jaytaylormedia.com. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Caden Resources, Canamex Resources, Go Gold Resources and Uranium Energy Corporation. And with regard to Canamex, I must say that I am deeply saddened by the sudden and unexpected timing of the passing of Robert Kramer, who's been a guest on this show uh, in just a few weeks back. Uh, he is the president and CEO of Canamex Resources. Uh, he passed away on, uh, on or about May 12th. And I had learned to know him and appreciate this man as one who was definitely dedicated to building wealth and doing the best he could for his shareholders, so he will certainly be missed uh, by those who know him much better than I do, but uh, I think also by uh, the people that invested in Canamex Resources. 
uh, but certainly our uh, heartfelt sympathies and condolences go to uh, his family. It is certainly in times like these that we're reminded how short and precious life is and how we have no choice really but to place our hope and trust in our Creator. Also, uh, among our sponsors, um, I want to just mention that uh, one of my competitors, uh, Lawrence Ralston, uh, has recommended Caden Resources, which I have also recommended to my uh, subscribers. Uh, Caden Resources, as I just mentioned, is a sponsor of this show. Uh, Uranium Energy Corporation, we're going to be talking to Amir Adnani. Uh, I believe it's next week. Uh, and Amir is, uh, well, that company has just acquired the Longhorn, Longhorn ISR project uh, with an existing aquifer exemption in South Texas. So Uranium Energy is one of the few new uranium producers. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Amir. It will be certainly interesting to talk to Amir and get his take on the uranium industry uh, and why uranium prices are remaining so low. Certainly, we would think with uh, the issues uh, coming up, um, the sort of the contention between the United States and, the, and Russia uh, certainly w- wouldn't be bullish or wouldn't be bearish uh, for uh, the uranium industry. But anyway, this uh, complicated issue, we hope to get some insights from Amir and also uh, on the industry as a whole. Uh, also, should notice that Go Gold, Go Gold, uh, another sponsor to our show, is starting ore processing at its Peril project. So there's a lot of good things happening with our sponsors, a lot of good things happening with the resource sector in general, although you wouldn't know it by the share prices, that's for sure. Uh, a little bit of a bounce back earlier this year. Uh, some of it has been given back, but I would remind you that uh, uh, Charles Nanner and others that I've been following very closely uh, have been expecting one last decline in the gold price. Uh, it may not be a new low, but it could come back and test the old lows earlier uh, in this bear market, which is a cyclical bear within a secular bull in my view. But in any event, um, uh, I think that uh, we're looking for the second half of this year. I certainly am hopeful that the second half of this year will be much more bullish for the gold and gold shares. And certainly we saw what a tiny little bit of a bounce up in the gold price meant to the gold shares earlier this year. Our gold shares in my portfolio are still up nicely this year, but uh, down by about 50% from where they were uh, a little earlier in the year. Well, let's get to today's show. Uh, titled it, I have titled it Surviving Materially and Spiritually in Police State, USA. Cheryl Chumley, she's a Washington Times journalist and author of the book Police State USA, will be visiting this show for the first time. And then returning uh, also will be John Rubino, David Jensen, Daniel McAdams, and John Kaiser. Well, Ms. Chumley uh, reiterates what I think most of the folks on this show already know, and that is, sadly, that America has moved very close to, if not directly into, what George Orwell's uh, predicted would happen when he wrote 1984. Uh, it, it certainly uh, does seem to be uh, a police state mentality that is really gripping our country and the, and the leaders of our country. Well, the question we want to ask Ms. Chumley is, how did America, which was at one time an exceptional country that offered, I think, offered a beacon of hope to the world, how have we now become a warmongering empire abroad and a police state here at home? where we're even sending drones into our own country uh, to chase down people that the government doesn't like or criminals uh, in some cases as well. But we'll talk to Ms. Chumley about that. 
uh, is certainly if we can get an answer to that question from her, then we'll want to know, is there any hope of taming this police state monster and turning it back towards uh, the values that provided uh, that were really provided for us in our Constitution? Why are we ignoring those values now? In any event, um, we also want to know how we personally can cope with these uh, th- issues spiritually and physically under a tyranny that is, after all, uh, quite new to those of us who were born in the home of the free and the land of the brave. And then, less philosophically, uh, we, uh, we will want to also, uh, less philosophically but certainly no less important, we'll be talking to John Rubino uh, as well uh, in the second. Well, John Rubino will actually be joining me in just a couple of minutes uh, to talk about uh, deflation, really, and some issues that John has been picking up on that I, I think make an awful lot of sense uh, are, is the biggest threat now we're facing one of deflation? And if so, how should we prepare for that? And I think John's going to have a lot of great insights to share with us uh, in just a couple of minutes after we come back from our first break. And then the second hour of today's show exclusively at jtaylormedia.com, David Jensen and Daniel McAdams will be visiting us, uh, giving us an update as they do every week on the geopolitical, economic, uh, and market events that really affect our, our investments. Uh, David Jensen is of the opinion that events in the platinum markets may be ready to set off an explosion, uh, first in the silver markets and then in the gold markets, and he'll explain his ideas along those lines. And then uh, finally, in the second hour of today's show at jtaylormedia.com, John Kaiser will be with me to talk about two very interesting penny stocks in the mining industry. The first one has to do with zinc, a zinc, uh, a zinc exploration company, um, and also, uh, he's going to talk about Scandium. Uh, it's a Scandium project that has high-tech, uh, revolutionary high-tech potential. Uh, and uh, it, it sounds like it could be a very, very good story. Uh, it is a good story. It sounds like it could be a very successful uh, investment, potentially. Stock is selling at a mere nine cents yesterday anyway. But we'll talk to John Kaiser, uh, again, the second hour at jtaylormedia.com. We do have to go to break right now, but when we come back, we will hear what John Rubino has to say about the possibilities of a global deflation and how we might best prepare for it. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. 
business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again John Rubino. Uh, John, uh, as a frequent guest, probably doesn't need that much of an introduction, uh, although for those of you who aren't familiar with him, let me just tell you that he runs the website dollarcollapse.com, which is highly uh, recommended, dollarcollapse.com. A number of great articles put up there, John's own ideas, his read of what's going on in the economy. Uh, he is also um, a co-author of uh, Gold Money, James Turk's, uh, he, along with James Turk, uh, The Collapse of the Dollar and How to Profit from It. And he's also, also the author of Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom. Uh, another book, How to Profit from a Coming Real Estate Bust uh, and Main Street, Not Wall Street. Uh, and so he has a, a background in finance, worked on, on Wall Street for a while uh, as a junk bond analyst and, and Euro-dollar trader. Uh, and uh, in the 1990s, he was uh, a feature columnist of thestreet.com and a frequent contributor to uh, Individual Investor. It's an online, online investor and Consumer's Digest, among many other publications. So uh, he also currently writes for CFA Magazine. Thanks for joining me again, John. Uh, hey, Jay. Great to be back. Hey, what, oh, one more thing. James Turk and I have another book out, brand new, called The Money Bubble. Which oh, will, indeed. Will, How could which, I forget that? We oh, talked to you about that some time ago, The Money Bubble, okay. and yeah. people can get it, pick up a copy where? Well, Amazon has it, and you can yeah. go to dollarcollapse.com, and there's a big ad for it there that you can click on, buy it that way. Okay, for the sake of those that, um, just, those that might not be familiar with it, real quickly, give us a, an overview of the, of the Money Bubble. Okay, well, it's a, a chronicle of all the mistakes that we made in the last five or six years since the last crisis and an explanation of why we've set ourselves up for an even bigger crisis this time around and that the epicenter will be, instead of housing like last time, it'll be the fiat currencies of the world, which we have created in basically insane quantities and which now constitute the greatest financial bubble in history. And when it bursts, everything is going to change. So the, the book uh, walks you through the process of how that happened and then gives a lot of explanations uh, or a lot of examples of investment strategies that you can use to uh, protect yourself when the time oh. comes. Yeah, it's, it's not a happy topic, and it's one that we talk about almost every week uh, in one way or another on this show, I think. And, and certainly we're seeing, John, some interesting developments that, that seem to pose some threat uh, to the dollar's dominance uh, globally, I would say. Would you be in agreement with that? Oh, yeah, totally, Jay. And, yet, you know, it's funny. Every time you and I talk, it seems like there's a different big story out there, and it's always negative. It's always some impending crisis. <laughs> and th- this one, I think, um, well, this, this time there are several. You know, Europe is one. 
that um, that is a good one to start with because uh, European interest rates are plunging right now, mm-hmm. which is a highly unusual thing to happen five years into a, a supposed economic recovery. You know, normally right. we'd, be, we'd be expecting um, a pickup in inflation and and uh, you know a tightening in most product markets and uh, and rising interest rates in response, but instead we're seeing interest rates plunge. And yeah, the reason, yeah, go, and, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes. You know, Spanish and uh, Italian bonds now yield something similar to what the U.S. Um, has to, to pay to borrow, which is mm-hmm. an insanely low rate. And uh, so the reason for that is that um, Europe is starting to tip back into a recession, which is looks like it's leading to deflation. In other words, prices actually going down, which um, is a, a good thing in a normal world. In a, a well-run economy, you should see mild deflation year after year. But in an over-indebted economy like Europe, uh, it's a potential catastrophe because it makes debts much harder to manage and because you have to pay back your interest in uh, ever appreciating currency and and that would basically destroy the eurozone so the uh, the thinking now is that uh, the european central bank is going to have to um adopt a quantitative easing program similar to what we have in the us where they they buy a lot of bonds in the open market with newly created currency and they're going to buy back a lot of the junk credits in Europe, which is to say they're going to buy Italian bonds and Spanish bonds, and, and they'll pay basically any price that's prevailing in the marketplace. So everybody's buying these bonds now in anticipation of selling them to the European Central Bank at a profit. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, that's, that's not a good thing, no matter how you look at it. Well, we're looking at uh, rates, as you noted in, in your missive recently, uh, John. Spain went from 6.5% to, to less than 3%. Portugal from 15% to 3.6%. Uh, Italy from 7% to 3%. I mean, there must have been some big profits made on people who bought those, uh, uh, you know, who, who, who invested in those, in those bonds. Oh, huge profits. And, I, I, uh, and you I know, mean, what Wall Street it, must be partying. Uh, Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. There, there are going to be some huge um, profits reported by some of the big investment banks that that played this. And you know, they're dealing with inside information. They get calls from the the central banks ahead of time when some policy changes in the works, right. and that allows the trading desks of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and Deutsche Bank and all the rest to position themselves ahead of time. So mm-hmm. that that's a game that's been going on forever, and uh, you know, we're seeing one result of it now with uh, with these huge trading gains. And and maybe it's not done because uh, the European Central Bank has the ability to force rates down even further. They they just announced today, if I understood the story correctly, that they we're going to uh, um, start charging negative interest rates on some loans. In other words, uh, you know, a savings account in Europe, which might have yielded half a percent last year, might yield negative percent, uh, negative half a percent this year. In other words, wow. you got to pay them to uh, pay them to for the money. honor of, 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 of holding your money. Yeah, yeah. And in that kind of an environment, even a three percent bond looks like a great deal. So, John, why would people do that? Why would I guess because there's so much money, you can't put it all under the mattress. Why don't you just take it out? Well, um, there are two answers to that. One is that if you have to hold euros, and like you said, you don't want to keep it all at home because that's inherently extremely risky, you got to put it somewhere. And if you can store it in a super safe bank where you're guaranteed to get your money back, and you have to pay them a, a small amount in order to do that, then maybe that's your, uh, your best option. The, the other answer is that in, in times like this, at a certain point, people just decide they don't want to hold the currency anymore. So instead of putting it in the bank, they swap it 
for real assets. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you buy some gold coins and you mm-hmm. store them. They're, they're a really easy thing to store because they're, uh, they're small in terms of how much they're worth. Mm-hmm. And in, in that way, you don't have to pay any interest to anybody <laughs> like you yeah. do with the bank now. And yeah. um, they will tend to go up in value versus a currency that's so mismanaged that you have to have negative interest rates out there in order to keep the economy from imploding. So at some point, we'll see a, a massive shift from paper assets into real assets if this continues. And it certainly mm-hmm. looks like it's going to continue because there's no alternative. Europe found out what happens when you try to run rational monetary policy in an irrational world. You get, mm-hmm. um, you get deflation. You get a, a, a economic collapse in which all the debt basically implodes until you change course and, and start liquefying the system again. So the rest of the world is in the same boat. John, it seems to me this is almost like a... a sort of a merged in buy-in type of situation i mean where they were threatening and you know the the plans are being made we're told uh for um you know instead of um uh a bail-in i should say not a buy-in a bail-in situation uh, it it looks like they're starting a bail-in if they're going to start charging interest for keeping your money it's almost like that well see that that's okay yeah it's a a small scale bail-in where the bank Uh is taking the money of its depositors and using that money to maintain itself. Mm-hmm. But there's the, the prospect of much bigger, more immediate bail-ins out there. As soon as a big bank gets into trouble, uh, they'll, they'll go in and they'll take 10% or 20% yeah. of yeah. Um, certain accounts. Yeah. So that, that adds to the uncertainty of holding euros right yeah. now. Because, uh, yeah, you, you put it in a bank and think it's safe, but it's actually not safe. And as you realize that you could lose 20%, if that bank happens to get into trouble, then what's the point? You know, why would you maintain a bank account when you have to pay to maintain it and they might come in and steal a, a fairly large chunk of the money that you put in there? So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're really creating the conditions in which there's a mass migration out of these fiat currencies because it, it's becoming less and less rational to hold them. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it sounds all very deflationary to me, John. If, if, if you've got your bank account is being taken away from you, uh, all of this debt that cannot be repaid, and yet Draghi has promised us that he's going to do whatever it takes, right? So, that, so, so, so I mean, that would imp- that yeah. would imply printing endless amounts of money, as Bernanke and and Yellen are doing. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know, Draghi's uh, anything it takes statement was brilliant yeah. because he didn't actually do anything after that. He just yeah. said it, and the markets calmed down for a while because they they knew that he was willing to do it. So he got away with a year of um, of shrinking the European Central Bank's balance sheet. In other words, he not only didn't buy a bunch of bonds, he let them run off. And so mm-hmm. that uh, the European Central Bank was actually pulling euros out of the system instead of creating new euros and dumping them into the system, which mm-hmm. is what a, a, a rational central banker would like to do in these circumstances. But uh, it couldn't last. Yeah. So now, okay. he, now he's got to put up or shut up. He's got to actually do something. <laughs> and what do you think? Is he? Will he? Oh, yeah, they're, they're talking about it now. I mean, it sounds like it's a done deal. You've even got um, Germany on board for some kind of quantitative easing. Okay. And you, you've, of course, got France and Italy and, and Spain clamoring for it. So yeah. there, there's a majority of the, uh, the voting population in Europe now in favor of uh, some kind of really aggressive monetary ease. And meanwhile, you've got a, a small but growing minority um, of voters who are against the euro conceptually now. You know, the anti-euro parties are actually starting to win elections in Europe. 
And that's, a, that's another wild card there because you've got deflation, you've got the central bank starting to monetize debt, and you've got uh, the political system turning against the euro. So, all, you know, who knows what's going to happen when you mix all these things together and, uh, you know, toss in some external crisis like is likely in the year ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the other things you mentioned, and I'm, my engineer is telling me we only have four minutes yet, I can't believe it, but he's, uh, China is another issue that you talked about, and then, of course, there's the United States. Uh, but the, the thing that's always bothered me, John, with this argument that you can inflate your way out is that our fiat currency system is based on, I, I like to say that debt is the raw material from which money is manufactured in our fractional reserve fiat currency system. And, and when you've gone down the wrong path uh, so long as we have, you have all of this malinvestment, money going into bad places, and so you don't get any really any juice out of it. You don't get any returns. You don't get, you don't get an efficient economy when you put things in, when you put capital into places it's, it's, not, it's not efficiently placed. And so it seems to me, in a way, one of the arguments I've made in, on the deflation argument is that the more, it's like almost if you're struggling in quicksand to get out, the more you wiggle, the more you go down. Uh, and the more you print money, the more debt you have. And debt, you can just clearly see, is growing exponentially. It's growing very rapidly in the United States, total debt I'm talking about. And I think in the whole world that's true. I mean, China is growing, is, is indebting itself massively. And Japan is probably the, the the worst of all. So, how does this all shake out? Well, it shakes out with a global um, devaluation of all the fiat currencies, because basically that's that's our only solution now. We just have to lower the value of the dollar and the euro and the yen, um, and in that way generate a big burst of inflation, and that makes the debts that are outstanding less onerous. So if we if we lower the value of the dollar by fifty percent, let's say that means you your mortgage is now fifty percent um, easier to manage. But that's not working, John. We're printing money like mad in the United States, and the average person, the stock market, the rich people are getting richer, but the average person in the country is not able, more able to pay his mortgages now than he was in the past. I, I don't see, I don't see unless they actually get money in the hands of the masses, one way or another, that this is going to turn things around. Yeah, well, well, we've been trying to um, inflate away our currencies, but we haven't succeeded because the amount of debt that we took on before is so gargantuan, but the amount of new currency we've created has just kept things more or less stable. Yeah, you know, we've, we've stopped the implosion, but we haven't, and I, by the way, I'm not saying this is a good thing, I, I, you know, devaluing no, I know your currency hurts savers, it hurts the people who really don't deserve to be hurt because their right. savings go down. While you're helping borrowers. So, you know, let's say I have a million-dollar mortgage and we devalue the dollar by half. That's great for me. But let's say you've saved 20% of every paycheck for a lifetime, and that hurts you, you know? So it's, it's, it's turning the normal calculus of good and bad and wise and unwise behavior on its head when you do something like this. Mm-hmm. But it, it will be the only option at some point. You know, Jim, Jim Rickards in um, his last two books argues that uh, eventually we'll realize that we can't devalue against each other. You know, currencies can't be devalued against each other because that's a zero-sum game. But everybody can devalue against gold. Mm-hmm. So at some point we'll reset the monetary system with the dollar worth one ten thousandth uh, an ounce of gold. In other words, mm-hmm. gold will be $10,000 an ounce. Our debts will be manageable because they will be 
uh, paid back in, in much less valuable currencies, and we'll be able to start again. But from getting from here to there will be this horrendous crisis because we won't do this willingly because that means we got to give up a lot of power. Our, our leaders have to give up a lot of power. Yeah, exactly. And they, they won't do that until they have no choice. Yeah, it's uh, that, that's for sure the case. The the boys in power don't want to give it up, and uh, and and they're fighting like heck to hang on to it. So uh, actually, this is sort of what happened in the 1930s with Roosevelt revaluing gold upwards. Dendy, after he, of course, after he confiscated it, um, mm-hmm. he, you know, then that was part of the idea is to inflate the currency. Uh, against against gold, and so I think Rickards is definitely of that of that mind. But a lot of interesting things going on now, John. Um, uh, and I'm just sort of waiting for my engineer to tell me when my next guest is available. But a, a lot of interesting things going on that we talk about from time to time. I think you and I have, but some of the other people I know, and that are the institutions that are being created in various countries for trading real bullion, gold, and and uh, petroleum, and so forth, like in in Moscow and in. China and the, uh, I think there's seven, six or seven different cities that are setting up bullion trading uh, uh, exchanges essentially, and I think South Korea, uh, South Korea, uh, Moscow's got one. Uh, um, we have Shanghai. Uh, there, there's a number of them, and the idea is that we may be swinging from a, uh, you know, moving from what was a, a petrodollar to a petrogold system. Is yes. that something you've been thinking about? Oh, absolutely. All, all these other countries out there are looking at how badly we're mismanaging the dollar. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. everything is priced in dollars out there. So they have to get dollars to use them to buy oil or gold or basically anything else traded mm-hmm. internationally. And, and they're starting to um, see that as an unnecessary burden on them. You know, there's no reason why they should have to do that when they have perfectly functional currencies that are as well managed as the dollar. So why not um, cut a bilateral trade agreement, say, between China and Russia, where gas is exchanged, for instance. China Mm -hmm. buys gas from Russia and pays with Chinese currency. Mm -hmm. And why not set up a gold exchange? Whereas, you know, in the U.S., the uh, precious metals exchanges are basically paper casinos. Right, exactly. Real real gold doesn't really trade very much there. But in these these foreign gold exchanges, they're functioning as a way to funnel actual physical gold into those countries. And so that's a completely different thing. Yeah, John, we'll we'll have to continue this on later because I, I'm understanding my my uh, my next guest is with me, but I look forward to uh, picking up on this and and more uh, from you in the not too distant futures, folks. A lot of really great things uh, at John's website, uh, and uh, that is again um, forgetting what it is. John, help me well, out. Dollarcollapse.com. Dollarcollapse. How could I forget? Dollarcollapse.com and lots of great articles there. Uh, go there. I think you write something almost every day, don't you, John? Yeah, well, every other day, give or take. Really and then there's lots lot of, of links to the daily news. A lot of good things to uh, sink your teeth into there. Thank you very much, John, for being with us. And uh, look forward to doing it again in the near future. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Thank you. Well, folks, uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, with Cheryl Chumley. And she has, uh, I think, a very, very important book uh, that she's going to tell you about. We're going to talk about a couple of the major issues. It's called Police State USA. Uh, how Orwell's nightmare is becoming our reality. It's not a happy story, but as we say on this show, we think it's better to know what the truth is and to deal with that than not to, uh, th- than not to know. Uh, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Cheryl Chumley. Come. 
comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased and honored to have with me Cheryl Chumley for the first time on this show. And she is a, a writer with the Washington Times, and prior to that, she was a digital editor for the Washington Times Digital Venture, uh, Times 247, and the online editor for Tea Party Review uh, magazine. She writes about politics and government for various newspapers, internet news sites. Uh, and think tanks. She is a journalism fellow uh, with the Phillips Foundation. That's a prestigious conservative organization in Washington uh, where she spent a year researching and writing about private property rights. Very important theme, uh, private property rights, which is something somehow people don't make the uh, connection between liberty and private property, but we'll no doubt be talking to Cheryl about that. Uh, her background includes award-winning recognition for investigative rep- uh, work, hard news reporting, and use of the Freedom of Informations Act. And she also uh, she's also a, a CASA, that's a volunteer court-appointed special advocate to help judges decide the best interest of children in foster and custody cases. And uh, she is an active uh, Army veteran. Her blog is CherylChumley.blogspot.com. And she is the author of the book we want to talk to her today about. That's Police State USA, How Orwell's Nightmare is Becoming Our Reality. Uh, thank you very much, Cheryl, for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. And what an intro. Thank you very much. Well, it's, it's really uh, much deserved. And I, I have a copy of your book in front of me, uh, Police State USA. Uh, you know, the, on the back of the book, in uh, pretty bold print, it says, Our rights come from God, not government. 
And on right underneath there, the famous quote, at least it's famous to us old guys who have been around long enough to have heard it, it's, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, capital C, with certain inalienable rights. That was written by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Now, what is so important about capital C creator? Uh, well, you know, I'm in agreement. I personally am definitely in agreement with Jefferson's uh, premise uh, that, that we have these rights that are given to us by God and not by Obama. Uh, I have a lot of libertarian friends who are atheists or agnostics who think that we have those rights, but they, you know, clearly given their views uh, of a creator, uh, don't believe they came from a creator, that, that somehow they're just natural rights. What uh, What's so important about capital C, creator, uh, in, this, uh, in this language? Right. It, it, it's very simple. If your rights come from God, then, you know, they stand the test of time. They cannot be changed. They can't be altered. You know, mm-hmm. you have basic human God-given rights that government cannot and any government that tries to take it away from you, then you can accuse them of encroaching in areas where they don't belong. And mm-hmm. when, once you remove that, uh, that principle from America's guiding documents, once, once we lose that greatest asset we have, that our rights come from God, not government, then we're going to crumble because our rights are going to be based on the whims of those who are in office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, going on in the in the Declaration, uh, it says then, uh, you know, that these rights come from God. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Well, uh, have we come to that point, Cheryl? And, and if so, do you, think there's, or do you think there's any hope that we can change the system from within? Uh, yes and yes. And uh, first off, I love hearing, I love hearing that read. I, I find that so inspiring and motivational to hear our founding fathers' words spoken out mm-hmm. loud. But here's a concrete example of where we could put those, those principles at play. With Obamacare right now, you know, 80%, 70%, 60% of America, depending on what poll you look at, hates Obamacare. They don't want it in its present form. They want to repeal it, or they at least want to alter it so it becomes something that's palatable to most Americans, and yet the, the few on Capitol, Hill, on Capitol Hill are standing fast and saying they know better than us. So where we could put that principle right now is we have the right, based on our Constitution, based on our God-given rights, to alter and abolish that. Mm-hmm. But how do we go about that? Because the guys in Congress uh, are so connected to the uh, to, to to various interests, corporate interests. Because I don't know for sure. You're much more in, ta- in tune with what's going on on Capitol Hill, I'm sure, than I am. I I'm more in tune with what's going on on Wall Street, probably most of the time. But uh, how many Republicans do you think would really stand firm right now, given the current composition of Congress, in trying to uh, to, would would go against Obamacare. Right. That's the problem right there, Jay. There's only a handful, right? Ted Cruz, yeah. Senator Rand yeah. Paul, maybe. The, you know, and the, the Republicans that you elect to do that back in the Tea Party wave, where are they now? They're kind of silenced on Capitol Hill because they're buried in committees where they have no voice. So the thing American people have to do is, first, you don't give up. 
You don't just say, well, we can't get it this year, we can't get it next year, let's give up. Or, and mm-hmm. you don't have to compromise on certain God-given rights. You don't mm-hmm. have to compromise on things that are the most important to you politically and culturally in, in this nation. So you don't give up the fight. You learn the Constitution. That's a big one because schools don't teach it anymore. And no. you stop relying on politicians to be the leaders because once they get to Capitol Hill, they're out for themselves 90% of the time. Yeah, that's what's so discouraging, and I, I don't know uh, ex- you well enough to know exactly what your views are. We've had Congressman Paul on this show many times in the past, and one of the things I always admired about Congressman Paul was I felt that he put his his beliefs and his views, and he was very uh, very much a constitutionalist ahead of his own personal his own personal goals. And some people, uh, uh, some people that are fairly close to Ron Paul and to Rand Paul wonder if Rand. Uh, will be quite as pure as his father, and and we can only hope and pray that he is, uh, or or that at least he sticks to the Constitution, right? Oh yes, definitely. And do you think I, I he think will? Re- I think Rand Paul stands up for his principles. He may deviate a bit from what his father, um, from what his father believed in. His father was a bit more libertarian, and I think I I see Senator. Uh, Rand Paul as more conservative in nature, but he has some good stuff going on, and he's not afraid to speak up for the average American, which is something that we really need on Capitol Hill. Yeah, and in your book, you did mention in terms of the drones, he was one of the few that stood up and questioned and challenged the president on that issue. Yes, and he also has a bill that he hasn't given up on, even though Harry Reid is trying his hardest to keep it coming from the Senate floor for an up-and-down vote. That's the audit the Fed bill that he's been pushing, that his father actually pushed uh, before he left office. And these are things that, you know, even President Obama guaranteed when he took over the White House. Transparency, open government, and yet Rand Paul is trying to bring forth a bill that would shine a light on one of the most secretive agencies in America that has control over our monetary system, and it's being stymied day after day by a, a, a core group of Democrats on Capitol Hill. So I think Senator Paul standing up for that is, is a strong sign. So it's the Democrats that are primarily stymying the, uh, the, the um, uh, audit the Fed? It would be Harry Reid in particular. Yeah. So, <laughs> Harry Reid so, is kind of at the so, core so, of the law. But but so I think some very rich and powerful people, all they really have to do is get to the people that head up these these committees, uh, the, the most powerful members of Congress, right? If they can buy them off, then then the people don't have a voice. Yes, and, and you raise a good point, kind of circling back to what you were asking about real solutions that Americans can take. You know, in my view, Americans should stop donating money to the, to the main, you know, parties. Parties, stop yeah. Stop funding the political system. Look for groups and watchdog organizations that fight for you and fight for your principles on Capitol Hill. There's hundreds of nonprofits out there and for-profits that go up to Capitol Hill and they fight for the very principles that you want. So mm-hmm. I, I think that would be one quick and easy solution to curbing back some of the encroachments we see by our federal politicians. You were, uh, in reading your resume there, you've been involved with the Tea Party. Where does the Tea Party stand now? Yeah, the Tea Party, they've suffered a few losses of late, but I've always believed that the Tea Party, and and they said this from the get-go, they never wanted to come out as a third party. They were Mm -hmm. simply a movement, and they were one that was started based on overtaxing principles. Mm -hmm. And they gathered steam through Obamacare. And if you look at the polls 
recent polls, and if you look at, you know, not just one or two polls, polls across a wide variety of sources, Obamacare is one of the key crucial elements facing, you know, uh, Capitol Hill politicians in the 2014 elections. So I think the Tea Party is going to have a voice, whether they come out as a voice of the Tea Party or it's just the movement that prevails behind the scenes. How would you define the Tea Party? I mean, what would be, because it seems to me that, okay, I remember when the Tea Party, I, I believe the birth of the Tea Party, I was watching it here, Rick Santelli on, on, CN, on CNBC was railing against, and I think he was probably one of the people that gave some, some movement to the, at least some, um, uh, some energy to the movement. Uh, but Tea Party, I guess it's really the party that wants to go back to the Constitution. Take the Constitution literally. Would you say that's a good summary of the Tea Party? Yeah, I, I mean, the Tea Party is just the founding father principles. It's the right. spirit that ran through this nation that made us stand up to the greatest nation in the world at the time and say, no, we're not paying these taxes anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just, that's what the Tea Party movement is. And I believe deeply in America that, that the heartland of America, the majority of Americans have that Tea Party drive within them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, looking at your book, um there's just so much to talk to you about, uh, and and so uh, the people that are listening to this show need to pick up a copy of Police State USA because we we'll, we can only touch on a couple of the of the major, uh, not major because I think they're all major, uh, the various topics. But what, what do you say to people that that would argue that what Jefferson said was good for his time, but it doesn't work today, and with all the technology that we have now, times have changed. You know, it's a long time ago. Um, I guess maybe your answer would come from my first question to you, and that had to do with uh, why does it matter that we that the that we get our rights from our Creator? Is that right? That that if if the rights come from God, then it doesn't change. Those rights right. don't change. Right, and you know, I know there's atheist people. I know there's people who don't believe in God. I know there's people that deeply believe in the freedom of America, but they see the rights as more civil rights and not God-given. And mm-hmm. my personal view is, I believe our rights come from God. I believe in God. I'm not going to deny, you know, mm-hmm. my Lord and Savior just because other people think I don't fit with the times. But mm-hmm. even if you mm-hmm. don't believe in God, you can believe in the Constitution and the founding principles that run through this nation, and you. Can can't deny that the founding fathers saw a creator inherent in the, in the construction of this nation. And you can't deny that they saw the rights coming from a higher power, not from a Capitol Hill politician. Right, for sure. I mean, Jefferson himself was, I think, uh, described perhaps more of a deist and not, uh, not, maybe not a Christian. I don't really know if that's true or not. It might be people that, that want to see Christianity uh, play less of a role that argue that. I don't really know the truth about that. But, but whatever uh, the, the situation and people that are not Christians or not believers can certainly see the virtues uh, of living like a Christian in terms of how you handle each other how you treat each other right and then if i mean if we all lived uh the ideal christian life i argue we wouldn't need any government at all hardly because we'd all be taking care of each other and we'd be taking care of ourselves and we wouldn't need to depend on government 
That's exactly right. What's wrong with with aspiring for something better, something higher in life? And besides, <laughs> a lot of this stuff has come about because common courtesy has gone down the drain. It used to be when I was growing up, I grew up in a liberal in a liberal school system, and they did they did not do prayers in school. But I was born and I was raised in an area where people did pray, and I was told to quietly and respectfully just keep my eyes closed or stand quietly. Now people sue; they can't stand the idea of somebody. Praying next to them and that's just a common courtesy issue yeah i don't understand why that would be so offensive but uh you know what what is it to them uh, let's get to some of the issues in your book i mean why this is important we've talked now about the you know where our rights come from but so that people can really see where the rubber's hitting the road and because I, I think that most americans are so busy with their daily lives uh, they don't have time to, to be bothered or to think about things. And I think also our media keeps people very distracted with issues that aren't all that important, but they're tantalizing and, uh, you know, things that really sort of excite people rather than the things that are really important. But in Chapter 1 in your book, there was a very frightening example of Anthony Mitchell of Henderson, Nevada. Would you care to share his story with us or, or, or any others that you think might be really important? Yeah, the the book's filled with stories like that. I think the Anthony Mitchell case was where um, he was a homeowner, and the police the police went to his home because they were investigating uh, a, a domestic call at a neighboring house, and right. they wanted to enter his home, and he said no. And rightly so. He didn't want him in his home. You know, that's how it is in America. You can turn sure. people away because of private property rights. The police didn't like that answer, and they busted through into his house. You know, it was this big chaotic scene. Some of the things that happened were they kicked his dog. They fired, uh, they fired pepper spray at his dog. They moved his furniture around. They actually ended up arresting him and an occupant of his house. And it ended up in court. And it was just a horrific you know, very un-American story that's based on fact. That happened. And that's just one of a dozen different stories like that that have gone on around America just in the last couple of years. There's a huge number of stories in this book uh, that are based on, on factual uh, happenings. Uh, there once it was, a, uh, you know, once upon a time, there'd be a court order that would allow cops to get into the house that, if there was a need to, but there would have to be a third party. Uh, so, you know, ho- hopefully the judge was honest and upright uh, and, and obeyed the Constitution and the law. Uh, but in this case, there was no court order. No, there wasn't a court order. He was just the the police officers there were just pursuing what they said was an active investigation. And you know, right around that same time in Indiana, there was another case where a police officer responded to a domestic complaint. The wife stood in the home. The husband was outside the home. The police officer tried to enter the home, even though the wife did not invite him in. And the man blocked the doorway. The police officer shoved his way through. There ended up being a tussle because the officer was never invited in to the home and it ended up going to court the supreme the highest court in indiana ruled that people now in indiana cannot expect to have a reasonable expectation of keeping a police officer out of their home if they're pursuing an active investigation that's huge that is horrible that that is very very that is very very bad let me ask you though this wasn't uh, considered to be any terrorist issue it was a domestic problem a domestic. This thing could happen. It goes on in your neighborhood every day. Husband right. and wives fight. Now police, if they feel that there's a danger enough, they can bust through the home and take action. 
You uh, were brought up in Massachusetts. Uh, the bombing that went on in Boston and the aftermath and the and the way the police behaved there. Do you? I don't didn't notice if there was anything in your book about that. But do you have any comments about that? I used the Watertown, um, the whole Watertown incident where they were looking for the Boston Marathon bombers as a case example of what can happen when, when safety and security has become such an issue and there's such a panic created because of fears in the populace that police are allowed to run roughshod, basically. So if you look at the whole Watertown incident, there were police everywhere. The whole city was shut down. Roads were shut down. Police, there were videotapes of police going into homes, pulling people out, arresting people, stopping people on roads, asking them for identification. That may have been warranted because of the severity of the time they were searching for two terrorists. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you have to look at that. This can happen in America if enough fear is generated. And that's something that we have to keep in mind as a red flag. Yeah, is uh, is the fear justified sometimes, uh, perhaps, might be also a question. You have on Chapter 4, you talk about the Patriot Act and why you should care. You know, the Patriot Act, which came about after 9-11, and um, yeah, I, I don't know about you, when you go through airports, how you feel about it, uh, but I, I know that I, it's it's one of the things that really makes me dread traveling. And I can tell you that there was a time, two or three years after 9-11, in which I inadvertently, by mistake, uh, had a, a, a box cutter in my pocket of my jacket, and I went right through uh, the airport at LaGuardia and went up to the Admiral's Club, reached in my pocket, and I says, oh, my gosh, look what I have. I've got the very thing that was supposedly used uh, in, during the terrorist attacks, and I went right through, uh, the, uh, right, right through the metal detectors. What kind of protection is this? Uh, that we that we have now, I wondered, and and do you have a sense that maybe a lot of this is just to make people feel safe? Uh, definitely, it's definitely what you just said. These are, a lot of these provisions at the airports are feel good policies put in place by politicians who are pressed by their constituents by their constituents to act and make them feel safer. So a lot of these policies are politically, you know, correct. They don't want to they don't want to touch on the real fears, the real roots of terrorism, radical Islam and so forth. But they'll go after babies and sort of pat down their diapers at, at checkout points in the airport. They'll pull over World War II, uh, you know, decorated vets and search their wheelchairs and so forth. And on the other hand, half the time these things aren't even they're not even finding what they're supposed to, as you, you yourself just demonstrated, you're able to walk through the checkout mm-hmm. point and not be caught with it. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it, totally inadvertent, and I was just shocked. I said, you know, wh- wh- what is this? Why, why are we going through this and taking our shoes off and doing all kinds of things, and yet, uh, you know, you, and, you know, it's just, to me, it just seemed sort of... Uh, I, I just uh, I, I was dumbfounded. Uh, the, but so the Patriot Act, and in Chapter 3... Um, also, when bi- when business turns when business turns big brother, uh, talk to us about the dangers of of what I think is turning into being more of a fascist state. If you look at economic fascism as the marriage between big corporations and government, it certainly seems to be what we have now. But talk to us a little bit about Chapter Three in your book. 
Well, actually, as the government starts collecting and storing more data and, you know, people get more and more used to it, accustomed to it, big business is getting in line. Data is big business. It's big money. And so, you know, your private sectors are starting to take advantage of some of this technology that's used by the military, by the government, in order to collect data and sell it. And part of the problem is it's downright creepy. You know, some of the technology is mannequins that with eyes that follow you as you shop recording your movements and conversations. It's kind of creepy. And the second part of it is, where is this information going? Where is it being stored for how long and why? Yeah, indeed. Well, there's a lot of creepy things going on, and we've only scraped the surface here just a little bit with Police State USA. I highly recommend to my listeners that you go out and buy this book. You can buy it, I'm sure, Cheryl, uh, on the Internet or at the bookstores, too, probably through Barnes & Noble and other stores. So I I think it's something that every American should read. Uh, I think uh, we need to be highly aware of of what's going on. And I think, uh, Cheryl, you have... um, have really encouraged me not to give up. I think uh, people like you who are courageously going out there and speaking your views, not only uh, not only about government, but your views about your beliefs in, in a higher being, uh, in a creator, is also very, very important. I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, and uh, I'd like to talk to you again sometime in the near future. Oh, I would love that, Jay. So nice speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, folks, uh, that is all for the first hour of today's show. I do want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. I want to thank each of you for listening. Uh, but I do want to remind you that there is a second hour of today's show. Uh, you can listen to it at jtaylormedia.com. we be talking to David Jensen, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and John Kaiser is going to be joining me with some very interesting penny mining plays in zinc and scandium. Very interesting. I think you'll find them. So if you go, so please go to J. Taylor Media immediately to listen to the second half of today's show. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with J. Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex, and NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 